Okay, good morning. Um, I'm excited. God's doing things this morning. It's great. Um, my name's Heather. For those of you who don't know me, I'm um, on the pastoral team here at Faith Life. Um, not for a huge amount longer. There was an email that went out this week to uh, let you all know that I've just handed in my notice. Um, I am going to be moving up at the start of April to Newcastle. Um, for a, a massively exciting new journey, I've been offered the position of children's ministry team leader at um, Heaton Baptist Church in Newcastle. So I'm going to be, um, yeah, driving all my things up the A1 and, and landing in Newcastle. Um, and it's really exciting, but I'm so sad to be leaving Cambridge. Um, so if you, when you see me over the next month, give me a big hug. And I might cry on you, but it'll be okay. Um, God, God's doing some awesome things. Um, and I'm excited for that. None of which was part of my, my preach, so I'm going to start my preach now. Um, so who had pancakes this week? Did you? Yeah. <laughs> I discovered, I was introduced to um, ah, uh, Biscoffy spread this week, which is, if there is evidence of God's goodness, it is Biscoffy spread. <laughs> um, it's excellent. Um, and Wednesday this week marked the beginning of Lent. And Lent is a significant time for many Christians, um, particularly in the Western world. Um, there are denominations and church kind of traditions for whom structures around the church calendar are really important. Perhaps you've been a part of a congregation like that before. And Lent is a key part of that. So it begins on Ash Wednesday, um, and Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of the 40 days that Jesus spent being tempted in the desert. And then it ends with the celebration of uh, Christ's resurrection on Easter Sunday. And Lent is commonly observed by the Anglican Church. Um, we're, we're the non-denominational rebels, so it's not really a part of our calendar as such, but many Christians from across the denominations and different theological persuasions take Lent on as an opportunity to focus their thoughts on Jesus in the midst of a really busy world and a busy life. Essentially, Lent is a time to reflect on his sacrifice and his sufferings and to look at him in the midst of everything else that is going on, everything else that seeks to distract us from him. I loved Susie's word this morning, and, and yeah, I love what Jesus is doing today. So for many people, Lent is an opportunity to um, give up something that is distracting them, to fast in some way, or to give up a habit or a behavior. It's kind of an exercise in self-denial. Um, perhaps there are some of us in this room who have given up chocolate, I'm very sorry, and we can pray for you later. Um, chocolate or crisps for Lent. Uh, maybe some of us have used it as a chance to step back from social media or from something else that is demanding our attention. I passed a very young boy in the supermarket this week who'd clearly been having a conversation with his mum about what Lent was. Uh, and he was trying to persuade his mother that he could give up wearing his trousers for Lent. Um, and he was very sure about that. So... <laughs> Now, Lent is not a requirement for being a Christian. Um, it's not commanded of us in the scripture. And that's not what this morning is about. But I felt prompted to start by reminding us about the importance of Lent and why some Christians celebrate Lent. And to use it as a springboard to think about the values and priorities that should be on our heart when we think about living a life fully surrendered to God. There are many ways that the traditions that we've built up around Lent fall short. Um, of pointing us to look at the glory of God. That little boy giving up his trousers or the act of somebody 
choosing not to eat chocolate might not necessarily stir their soul to gaze at the goodness of God. And yet Lent is a nudge in the kind of, into the kind of life that we are truly called to live as Christians. In Romans 12, Paul calls us into a life of full sacrifice and surrender to God. Um, quickly stopping on verse 1 for those of you with the Bible. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. I wanted to start by reflecting on this season of Lent, not because we need to all go away and follow the rules and give up chocolate so that God loves us more. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but maybe there's something in this Lenten lifestyle that we could actually learn from, the values and traditions that it's been built on. Ultimately, Lent points us towards a lifestyle that we are all called into, a life laid down and truly focused on God. Instead of the denial of treats and luxuries, God calls us into a life of surrender. And it is that that I want to explore a little bit this morning. So what if we took this season as a prompt, not just as a a life of sacrifice in the little things, but for surrender, not just for a project, but an experience with God. And not a discipline, but a love offering. And we live in an age that is obsessed with gain, with having enough, with feeling um, like we have enough in us to survive the situations that we're put in in work with feeding ourselves on whatever we would like and looking after ourselves first. And we're obsessed with success, with manageable, measurable success. Success that is visible to those around us and that we can share on social media. And the heart of Lent speaks into this culture of greed and success and gain. Lent asks us to turn our uh, eyes away from ourselves and our own needs and to fix them on Jesus. It invites us to walk with Jesus through the darker seasons of his life, the the parts that we'd rather not focus on. As we watch Jesus and the disciples in the weeks leading up to the cross, we are drawn into this story with them. We talk a lot about Jesus in the best parts of his life, when he turned water into wine and when he walked on water, in the healings and the miracles, in the moments he really came to meet people where they were at. But in those times leading up to the cross, we see Jesus crying and we see him begging his father for there to be another way. We see him feeling the worst of emotions that we all feel. Betrayal and hurt and loss and pain. And we see the disciples start to lose hope in the man that they thought had come to save him, save them. And it ends, of course, with Easter Sunday, a celebration of salvation, and in that we can see the fruit of the pain that Jesus walked through to get to the cross. But Lent is an opportunity to walk with Jesus and his disciples through some of the most disillusioning times of their lives. Jesus, who calmed the winds and the waves, allowed himself to be arrested. The Messiah, who they thought had come to save them from the Romans, was about to die, and they didn't have the hindsight that we have now. Their ideas of what Jesus should do with his power were taken over by what he actually did with his power. And the commitment that they'd made to be faithful to him unto death was starting to turn into fear-inspired self-protection. And the small things that we might choose to sacrifice during Lent pale in comparison to the sacrifice that, we, that Jesus made for us. 
the devotional that I've been reading this week described Lent as a time of adopting a form of temporary discomfort to self with the intention of bringing to mind the discomfort of the cross, which of course is unspeakable. Our 21st century mild discomfort is nothing to what Jesus went through on the cross. And while we ache to meaningfully honour the pain that he went through and his resurrection, he, this season so often becomes about the celebration of a bank holiday and Easter eggs. Lent is so often described with project language. It has a start date and an end date, and we can fail at it. But let's just turn our eyes back to what it really is. Of course, your Christian faith is not dependent on whether or not you gave up chocolate for Lent. But I'm not going to tell you that the Christian life involves no sacrifice and that all of this is meaningless. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I'm saying that when we are saved, when we enter into this covenant with God, we lose any right to hold on to anything for ourselves. You're not a Christian so that you can feel like you're good enough or that you have a purpose or gifts or that you are strong. You're not a Christian so that you can be happy. How many of us need to hear that this morning? You're not a Christian so that you can be happy or so that you can be well. You're a Christian so that Jesus can live fully and completely in you. There's this awesome conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, which we can read, read about in the book of Luke. We're going to turn to Luke 9, verse 21. This isn't on the screen, unfortunately, but if you have your Bible, do turn with me. Luke 9, verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. That's that he was the Messiah, who, which they'd been talking about just before. He warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? I'm not a Christian so that I can stand in the midst of pain and difficulties and look like the strong one because my faith is keeping me strong. I'm not a Christian so that my gifts, the things that are good about me and the ways that I'm amazing, can shine for others. I'm not even a, a Christian so that they can help others. Christian life begins when you realize that it's not about you. You're not a Christian for your well-being or your health. God's goodness does not depend on you being well. And if we, do, if, if we believe that it does, we'll just be tired and burnt out and disillusioned about who God is. You're not a Christian so that you'll be blessed. And if you are a Christian so that you'll be blessed, what happens when you're not feeling blessed? This is why we get stressed out, burnt out, bitter and disappointed because your whole life is focused on what is wrong and, I'd, and our identity revolves around the problem. But there's good news the good news is that Jesus is here and he lives in you and you are a light to shine for others in the face of it all come hell or high water that he is still good. That's the good news, amen? To deny ourselves is to hold this selfless attitude that, he, that says that he is the glory and that whatever comes, he doesn't change. So why should our faith? 
That is good news. It's, good, it's better news than any compliment I could give you, anything good I could say about your character or your personality or your gifts. If he is what life is all about, then all of life is to be found in him. Amen. If he is what life is all about, then apart from him, you are nothing. And if you are chasing an identity that does not come from him and who he is in you, you'll be chasing that your whole life. There will be seasons when you'll feel good about yourself and then something will let you down and your entire faith will be shaken because you'll realize that you are not everything that you thought you were. At the beginning of the Gospels, we're introduced to John the Baptist and it's him that I want to pause and take a look at today. So if you're reading with me, you can turn to John 3 and we're going to be reading from verse 22. Uh, now, John, we know, is the one who came before Jesus. He came to make a way um, for the Messiah who was coming. He came to preach that the kingdom was coming and to make path straight for Jesus. John's clothes were made of camel hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. He really lived a Lenten lifestyle his whole life. He lived with nothing. And he pointed people to Jesus. But people were drawn to him. They came from Jerusalem and all over Judea. And confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the River Jordan. John obviously was there before Jesus. He fulfilled the prophecies that one would come to make a way for the Messiah. And at the time, John was a wise rabbi and a baptizer. He was the one that they went to for their spiritual guidance and their, their connection. And then when Jesus shows up and begins ministry, ministering, sorry, there is an opportunity for some of John the Baptist's followers to kind of come in and start to cause some conflict, so they can stir up some conflict. So from verse 22 in, in John 3, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John was also baptising at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming out and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. In other words, John, you are so amazing. We love you so much. And look, this other man is baptizing too. Is he doing it better than you? Do you, need, do, you th do you know that people are going to him instead of you? To this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given to them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens to him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. And it's this line that, that caught my heart this week. He must become greater, I must become less. You know, there are two kinds of ambition. And the people who came to John with these words give us a wonderful example of both. There's godly ambition, a desire for the kingdom to be built up and for God's work to be done on earth. And there's selfish ambition, that we would have a role in it, that we would um, help God <laughs> on his mission. 
Ambition for ourselves might be quite modest, having enough to eat and drink and wear. Or it might be more grandiose, a bigger house, a faster car, a higher salary, a wider reputation, more power. But whether our ambitions are modest or not, they are ambitions for myself. Even having enough to eat and drink, Jesus warns us not to worry about that in the Gospels. It's about my, my comfort, my status, my stability. John responds to this so well. He stops the voices where they are and he points at Jesus. He must become more, I must become less, he says. He uses the analogy of a wedding party and let's just take a moment to stop and have a look at that. At the time, the image of a marriage would have been familiar to the people around him and it was therefore a useful metaphor. And this illustration of a marriage is still helpful for us today. So he said, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The friend of the bridegroom, who we would now call the best man or the maid of honor, arranged lots of the details for the ceremony and the contract. He served and helped the bridegroom on the wedding day and arranged lots of the festivities around the day itself, making sure that people were well-fed and that there was plenty of wine. That role was, and still is, a position of honour. It's an honour to be asked to look after a friend in that way. The friend on that wedding day rejoiced with the couple who were rejoicing, and there was none who was celebrating more than he was. So this is an illustration of his own position that John was trying to, to communicate to those who followed him. People came to him expecting him to be envious of Jesus and all the attention that he was receiving. But for him, this was everything he had ever hoped for. This was his mission on earth. His life work had been leading to this. His efforts had not been in vain. And that, he says, is why the joy is his and that joy is now complete. I wonder if you've ever experienced that role. I've been a bridesmaid uh, recently. And it's a real honor to celebrate that day with someone. And in, on that day, nothing that you're feeling is envy or jealous or, or, or bitterness or sad. It's celebration for the couple. It's being proud of them, of who they are. So what can we learn from John? We know that we are the bride of Christ. We are the ones who just have to receive from him and this amazing promise in him. But we can also be like John the Baptist here. We can be the one who receives and then leads other people into the same relationship. We can be the one who receives and then celebrates who God is in the union with the people who are meeting him. We can be like John and find no greater joy than seeing Jesus glorified. We can walk faithfully in our purpose of pointing at him without claiming any of the glory for ourselves. We can lay down our lives, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. And it's a decision that we have to make every day. It's a position of honour and it's one that we're chosen for. We can rid ourselves of the envy and bitterness that comes when we look at the world around us and live from our own selfishness, our own self. And we can replace this with an awesome hope that comes from hearing his voice. The bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom rejoiced when he heard the bridegroom's voice. We can, 
words. We can choose to deny ourselves the human emotions, insecurity, fear, bitterness, envy, and replace it with the help of the Holy Spirit with awe for Jesus and who he is. Every man has his work and sphere appointed to him by God. Even Jesus came under the law for a purpose. In Hebrews 5, um, it talks about how high priests are chosen from among the earth to represent the people. No one takes that honor on himself, the writer writes in verse 4, but receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. Even Jesus was chosen and came to a role that was appointed by him. We cannot find our identity in who we think we are, what we think we're meant to do, and how good we, we think we are at it. Because that's always going to fall short. God is never going to be glorified when we live out of those ambitions. And we live in a world that loves to talk about loving ourselves and caring for ourselves. Popular culture says that some of the keys to loving ourselves include not expecting perfection from ourselves and forgiving ourselves when we're not perfect, learning to nurture ourselves and forgive ourselves, listing our best qualities and using affirmations to remind ourselves of them. They're all tools that we can use. They're not evil. But I, again, I think they miss the point quite significantly. Um, there's a devotion by a French monk uh, called Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, I did some really interesting reading this week. Um, a French monk by Bernard of Clairvaux. He lived from the year 1090 to 1153, and he wrote a book outlining what he called the four degrees of love. Um, so love of myself for my own sake, love of God for my own sake, love of God for God's sake, and then finally love of myself for God's sake. He said these are the, the kinds of love that we grow through as we get to know Christ more and more. And we might take a step back into, into one that we've been in before, but they're Obviously, the one that we're reaching for is the love of ourself so that God is glorified and the love of God so that he is glorified. Basically, he identified four different ways that we express and, in, and experience love. And as we grow in this relationship with God, I'll run through them briefly. I found this helpful and I wonder if you would too. So the first degree of love is love of myself for my own sake. It's a selfish Preoccupation with my own needs, a natural kind of love for myself, wanting everything to revolve around me. So 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 talks about this kind of love. For people will be lovers of self and utterly self-centered, lovers of money and aroused by inordinate, greedy desire for wealth, proud and arrogant and contemptuous boasters. It's not a true love for ourself because it's not really love but it's a love for comfort and fame and attention. The second degree of love that he outlined was love of God for my own sake. So when we can't meet our own needs and we experience a crisis, we crawl to God for his help uh, to meet those needs. We love God for his blessings. And we see this in Psalm 116, verse 1. David says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. It's not a bad love, but it's still self-centered. It's still focused on me and my needs. So the third degree of love, love of God for God's sake. As we grow in faith, we grow to love God in a deeper way. 
we realise that he is more than a genie who solves our problems. Through worship and prayer and time in his word, we come to truly know God and love him for who he is and not just for what he can give us. So 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 8 describes this kind of love. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. How beautiful is that? That's what true and proper worship is, isn't it? And the fourth degree of love, love of myself for God's sake. So Bernard explains that this, is, this love is only experienced kind of fleetingly in this world. It's not, it's not um, easy in our culture. But when we experience a oneness with God and we can pray from the heart, thy will be done, we lose our self-preoccupation. We don't dwell on our own needs. That's when we truly love ourselves. So this love of ourselves for God's sake only comes when we truly see ourselves as the forgiven, much-loved sons and daughters of the king. We don't love ourselves because we've performed well. We love ourselves because we see ourselves through God's eyes. Because of Jesus, he sees us redeemed and righteous. He calls us precious and honoured and loved. In 1 John 5.19, the writer says, We love because he first loved us. It's only because of Christ's love that we can even love ourselves or others. I wonder if with the people around you or the person sitting next to you, um, <laughs> I'm a youth worker at heart, so I'm going to give you a little, a little exercise. Um, with the person sitting next to you, if you can identify what the difference is between the first and the last and how life looks different when you're expressing that fourth degree of love. Question for you. Go for it. Have a chat with the people around you and see if you can think of an answer. So... Can you identify what the difference is between that first degree of love, so love of myself for my own sake, and the fourth degree of love, love of myself for God's sake, and how life looks different when we're living in that fourth degree of love? Does that make sense? Kind of. Go for it. See if you can have a think. Two minutes. A minute, two minutes. The teacher's pets on the front row are finished. So. <laughs> 20 seconds just to come to some kind of conclusion i'm not going to ask you to feedback okay there's there's this great quote from a theologian called eugene peterson on the topic um he says this he says christian spirituality the contemplative life is not about us it is about god it's not about us it's about god the, the great weakness of american spirituality which we we fit into in some way. The great weakness of American spirituality is that it's all about us, fulfilling our potential, getting the blessings of God, expanding our influence, finding our gifts, getting a handle on principles by which we can get an edge over the competition. But the more there is of us, the less there is of God. That wrecked me a bit this week. The more there is of us, the less there is of God. We can make life all about us, but we're missing the point. So how do we respond to this? How do we <coughs> respond to this call to a, a Lenten lifestyle and laying things down? What does that look like for us? Firstly, we repent. 
Now, we as the, the church, the capital C church, don't seem to talk a lot about repentance. We know that we're covered by grace, and so we stay away, we stay away from this word repentance because in it is kind of wrapped up this word condemnation. We are saved when we accept Jesus. We are forgiven, and that is a finished work. There's nothing you can do to, to step away from that work. But we obviously don't always live in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God. We lay down our lives, and then we occasionally take, take back a little bit for ourselves, and we hold on to something that we had previously laid down. We think in a way sometimes that doesn't line up with God's words. And while there's no condemnation for those things, we're also not stuck in that place. We don't have to give in to our sinful nature and accept that that's just the way that we're going to live. And it's fine because grace covers us. God desires a laid down life. And our identity is one who has been made holy by Jesus on the cross. But we also need to obey his command to turn our hearts around when our thinking does not line up with his. I love this command through the prophet Joel. I'm reading this from John 2, from verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. I love that word that's translated in the Bible is repentance. Metaneo. It has a meaning so much deeper than just saying sorry. You've probably seen Sam Preacher at some point do the illustration of repentance. It's not just walking in our sinful nature and then stopping. It's turning and adjusting our course and focusing back on God and walking him, walking towards him. It means to change one's mind or purpose. There's a turning around and a refocusing on God's will. We can do this in the little things and the big things because repentance doesn't bring condemnation. Repentance is simply with God choosing to turn your thinking around and hold it again close to him. If we're not doing that in our lives, if we are holding parts of our lives away from God and keeping them to ourselves, it is so easy to repent of this and to change the way that you are thinking. So easy. Secondly, we decrease. We become less. So John the Baptist described the Christian life this way. He said, I must increase. No, he must. <laughs> that is not what he said. I'm, he must increase. I must decrease. Decrease is a spiritual necessity. And it's such a countercultural way to live. John the Baptist really grasped this. His life, his calling, was prophesied before he was even born, that he was one who would make, make straight the paths for the Lord. And yet, really, he lived a Lenten lifestyle 365 days a year. His diet was narrow, he didn't have many possessions, and his focus was on God. But for John, this decrease was less about what he had and more about attention. His desire was for people to look through him and see Jesus. Paul writes to the Philippians, too, about this need for a laid-down life for Christ. So Philippians 3, verse 7, says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which is through faith, but that which is through faith in Christ. Lent, or a Lenten lifestyle, a laid-down lifestyle, is an ache to live unattached to what man counts and measures. Money, status, busyness, tiredness. How much does our culture celebrate being the busiest, most tired person in the room? Productivity, greed, stability. Knowing what we're doing with our lives, having those things for ourselves, none of it matters ultimately. This is what Paul is saying. The things that he had counted as gain, the things that he was born with, that culture had given to him because of who he was and what he was born into, as well as the things that he had collected through his life, he deemed all of these things to be not just loss, but uh, not, sorry, he deemed all of these things to be loss compared with the knowledge, the experiential personal knowledge of who Christ was. There are things that seek a place with Christ in our hearts. Christ and money, Christ and stability, Christ and influence. But Paul not only counted them as a lust, but he refused to be associated with them. They were disgusting to him. That word translated as garbage is scubalon, which is such a strong word. It actually means waste that is thrown to dogs. The filthy scraps that are good for nothing other than to be discarded and sent away from us. Salvation changes us, and the constant and consistent renewal of our mind means that we are slowly made new. When we are a believer, we prefer Christ. We know that it's better for us to be without all worldly riches than with them and and lose him. Thirdly, we pause. As much as anything else, Lent is a reminder in the midst of this busy life that celebrates tiredness to pause and to set our eyes once more on God. We're all familiar with the invitation that Jesus gives us. In Matthew 11, verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's an invitation for us. It's those It's an invitation to those who are burnt out by religious lights. He wasn't primarily talking to non-Christians, but to the saved. He was talking to those who had um, tried everything they could to, to be right with God, and they were tired. We can take up that invitation in Lent to stop and to rest in him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We can receive that rest from him because he so gladly wants to give it to us. And finally, we honour. There's there's so many amazing stories in the Gospels as we lead up to the cross. And it's really uh, fascinating to see that the way that the different disciples and Jesus' friends responded to to the, the news as they discovered more and more of it. But in John 12, there's this really beautiful story. Um, he sat at a table with his friends, with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. 
and this happens. So I'm reading uh, from John 12, verse 1. So six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That's a cool dinner here. Um, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She, come in, she came in and she threw this expensive perfume over his feet. It's, it, it's such an odd moment, you know. That, that expensive perfume would have been worth um, a year's wages, you know. Would you throw, you know, 25 grand's worth of perfume over someone's feet? But that's what she did. Verse 4 says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray, to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag, and he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The people who got what was happening and, and got who Jesus was used that time as an opportunity to honour him. They used Lent, effectively, the time before the cross, as an opportunity to, yeah, spill out everything onto his feet, to honour him. Might we do the same? Even after that, Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people came to him and sang, Hosanna, blessed is the one who came in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. This news of Jesus going to the cross, the news of who Jesus is, is great news. And the call is to lay out our entire lives. And while that's so countercultural and so difficult to do in our time and our age, it's what we're called to do. Um, so what does that look like for us in middle class Cambridge, where actually life is about going to work every day and having enough and looking after our families? And what does it look like to live a life laid down for God? What does it look like to make everything his? To say, none of this is mine, none of this is mine to hold on to. What does it look like to have a faith that says he must increase and I must decrease? To have a faith that says that my, all of my hope is that people would look through me and, and see him. That's what I want us to respond to. And I wanted to challenge us in this season of Lent to just think about how we can lay down our lives for Jesus. Not necessarily going away and giving up chocolate, but thinking about maybe you want to write something down just as we end. What we need to lay down in life, whether that's anxiety about having enough, whether that's worries and fears, it all needs to line up with Jesus. We can't hold on to it for ourselves. Whether that's being enough, being, being good at our jobs, how tempting is it to hold on to that title? I was reading a book this week and she was saying, 
the way to respond to that is to collect praise like flowers and at the end of the day to present the, the bouquet of flowers to Jesus and say, it's yours, take it. We repent, we change our minds and we turn back to God. Maybe there's something there that you need to do. Maybe there's some way that you've been thinking that needs to change. We repent, we decrease, we pause, and we honor. We're going to um, go back into a time of worship um, in a minute. If I can invite the band to come back up, that would be wonderful. But I just wanted us to take a minute to respond to this. Um, it was a real, um, I call it like a, a God download of a message has been nagging me with this stuff for the whole week. And I, I just felt that it was something that we really need to respond to this morning. So if, if this is kind of connecting with you, if you're wrestling with some of this stuff this morning, and if you would like to respond and say, yes, that's me, I'm going to take this moment as an opportunity to repent or decrease or pause, or honour him. Will you stand with me?